Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Yep, you heard that right. We're now into our 10th year of presenting conversations with top artists, curators, historians, and authors, which is pretty darn cool. As much fun as it's been to talk each week with people whose work I admire, it's been almost as much fun to watch the show's audience grow and, I hope, our work improve. If you'd like to celebrate our 10th year with us, please give us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. The algorithms aren't as sentimental as I am, which is why they demand sacrifices, right? This week, Terry Adkins resounding at the Pulitzer Foundation for the Arts in St. Louis. The exhibition is a survey of more than 40 works from across Adkins' career. It includes several installations that have not been exhibited since Adkins debuted them. The show also includes books, musical instruments, and other objects from Adkins' own collection. Atkins was a pioneer in blending sculpture, sound, performance, and other media in his engagement with the canon of African-American culture. The exhibition was curated by my first guest, Stephanie Weisberg, with Heather Alexis Smith. It's on view at the Pulitzer through February 7th, 2021. We'll have links on manpodcast.com to the Pulitzer's exhibition guide, which is available online for free, and the exhibition website, which also includes a reading list, a video walkthrough, and all kinds of other great digital content. On the second segment, we continue our look at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston's new Kinder Building installations with curator Mari Carmen Ramirez. But first, Stephanie Weisberg, after the break. Take a virtual drive down Sunset and experience the iconic boulevard through the lens of artist Ed Ruscha. Featuring more than 65,000 photos taken between 1965 and 2007, This interactive online exhibition guides us from downtown L.A. to PCH, past sites like the Cinerama Dome, Roxy Theater, and Chateau Marmont. Watch the storefronts, billboards, and cars change over time. Search for a favorite neighborhood or landmark. Learn more and start driving at 12sunsets.getty.edu. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston has just opened the new Nancy and Rich Kinder Building for Modern and Contemporary Art, capping the completion of a decade-long project to complete the Susan and Fayez as Seraphim campus. Visit mfah.org getmodern. The Nasher Sculpture Center is ready to welcome you back. Kick off the fall season with a stroll through the Nasher Garden, and visit today to see Barry X. Ball remaking sculpture, the first U.S. museum survey of works that combine 3D scanning technologies with traditional sculpture techniques. Whether online or in person, find new ways to enhance your visit, from time ticketing, weekly music performances, to expanded digital content on the Nasher app. Learn more at nashersculpturecenter.org. And we're back. Stephanie Weisberg, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for having me. One of the keys to Terry Adkins's work was his identification of a canon of African-American culture, a canon he then addressed and celebrated within his sculpture, his sound, his performance, lots more. What types of people fit into Adkins's canon and how did he decide who fit in it and who he would address in the work? Yeah, Adkins described his practice as a way of ennobling the legacies of what he referred to as unheralded figures, largely from the canon of African-American culture, but he certainly did dedicate works to people beyond that as well. So he was particularly interested in people who either 
did not receive their due for significant contributions they had made. So, for instance, the blues singer Bessie Smith, who made an enormous impact on music in the early 20th century and then did not receive proper recognition in the city where she was buried in Philadelphia. He was particularly interested in her or sometimes figures who may be well known in a particular context, but there were certain aspects of their biography that Atkins wanted to highlight or expose further. So for instance, there's a recital that looks at the confluence of interests, common interests of George Washington Carver and French conceptual artist Eve Klein, who are two figures that you would normally never place in the same sentence. Before you go on, could you just quickly explain or describe what a recital is in the Adkins context? A recital, Adkins organized his practice, especially by the late 1990s, according to recitals, which is a term that he created to define a group of works that would collectively explore the history of a particular figure or historical moment. And they were often rooted in very deep research. He was interested in bringing the improvisational aspects of music into the process of making these objects, which is where the term recital comes from. And then additionally, these groups of objects would be activated oftentimes by performances by Atkins and a group of musicians and performers that he founded called the Lone Wolf Recital Corps. So collectively, those installations, the research that was the foundation of the works and the performances formed his recitals. So George Washington Carver and Eve Klein, Atkins looked at surprising connections between the two of them, including their interest in ancient Egypt. Obviously, Eve Klein is well known as a conceptual artist and painter, but George Washington Carver, who is most well recognized for his work as a scientist and inventor, is oftentimes not spoken about as an artist and painter, though he was acclaimed musician and painter and inventor of pigments. And in fact, both of the men very similar hue of ultramarine blue, three decades apart. So in summary, oftentimes Atkins was, would investigate figures who either had just not been recognized or are well-known, but certain aspects of their biography he felt deserved further attention. With that as kind of outlining Atkins's mode of address, what kinds of materials did Adkins use in his sculpture and installations, and how did he accumulate them? So Adkins was very invested from an early time in found materials. He's actually trained as a printmaker, and he spoke about printmaking as exposing him to a wide range of materials, and he brought that into his practice as a sculptor. So oftentimes, as he would be invited to residencies or exhibitions, he would travel around the site where he was working and explore materials or find materials nearby, oftentimes that related to the history of the site. For instance, in Akron, Ohio, he included a number of works that used rubber 
Akron has a long history of rubber production. So he he had a ethos in his practice that he called potential disclosure, which is a three-stage process of relating to materials. And he first would sort of discover or encounter these materials. And then he described this gestational period where he would allow the materials to sort of reveal themselves to him is how he described it, what their purpose was. And and this would be rooted in a month long practice of research into a particular figure, for instance. So he would already be thinking about the history or individual that he wanted to investigate. And within that context, he would sit with these materials and just sort of on his part, passively let them identify themselves to him. And then there would be a transformational stage in which he would actually incorporate them into oftentimes a sculptural work. Did he identify art historical roots for his accumulation of material, or were there any that you think were particularly important? You know, what he did more was contrast himself to other art historical, or not not even really historical, but um, sort of contemporaneous uses of found material. He contrasted his relationship to found material to artists using that material who were working in California. And he thought that oftentimes artists, especially black artists, used found materials in a way that was slightly tokenizing. And he, he actually spoke about he took a trip to Uganda and Ethiopia in 1992 and was exposed there to artists making work from found materials, but just through necessity, not through sort of an aestheticized relationship to this perceived sort of essence within these artists or within the objects and within the sort of pre-used matter. And he he said that after he returned, he had a more complicated relationship and was more unsure about his use of used materials. But honestly, it, it also came out of a sense of practicality to a large extent, especially early on. He could only afford to use found materials and would oftentimes go and buy materials by the pound, you know, at sites where industrial material was being processed. So it was a sort of a mix of his own artistically guided ideas about material, but also practicality. The the one person that he speaks about frequently in terms of material, and this is certainly someone who did not use found materials, but his interest in directness of relationship to materials is Brancusi. So Brancusi was a huge influence on Atkins, and he was really inspired by his direct relationship to the materials that he worked with. So oftentimes, the points of interest for Atkins are totally (laughs) separate from what you might expect at first glance looking at his work and looking at you know, an accumulation of industrial materials from a textile manufacturing company might not immediately think of Brancusi, but that was Adkins, one of Adkins' 
biggest influences in relationship to material. And finally, before we get into some specific works, was Adkins trying to make sound visual, not not just in terms of the materials he used, of course, but often his his representations seem related to sound and how we might experience it? Yes, absolutely. So Adkins spoke about his core quest in in his work was to make music as physical as sculpture and sculpture as ethereal as music. He was trained from a young age as a musician and his instrument of choice was saxophone, though he played many instruments and he learned and practiced improvisational music and jazz adjacent music. He didn't like to refer to it precisely as jazz within the DC area of avant-garde improvisational music while he was sort of coming up as an artist and the two disciplines completely influenced each other in his practice. And it was something that really was at the core of his work that he maintained throughout his entire career. The idea that his goal was to make matter immaterial and oftentimes many of his sculptures visually represent the sonic. There's a work called Divine Mute, for instance. I was going to bring that one up from 1998. <laughs> exactly. So that, so that work is from a recital dedicated to John Brown, and it's almost six feet in diameter, and it's sort of comprised of several concentric rings. The central one is a sousaphone bell, and there's a very large aluminum disc that surrounds it. And just from looking at the sculpture, you get this an immediate uh, visual sense of, of sound and noise. And Atkins also, in fact, described the work as symbolizing the thunderous sound that would have accompanied the divine calling that inspired John Brown to take up the abolitionist cause. But the work also, very literally, if you stand in front of it, your voice echoes out into space as it shoots into the sousaphone and then is directed back outwards into the room. And it's a really interesting confluence of a abstract portrait of a figure in which Atkins was able to select a particular part of Brown's biography or story and imagine it through visual and sonic means. And I think it's a, a great example of that intersection in his practice and the way that he successfully married the two and sort of made sculpture and sound both misbehave and take on the other's characteristics. We'll have an image of Divine Mute on manpodcast.com. There are also references within the work to Adkins's interest in Christianity. It recalls the way the Annunciation was portrayed, say, in Dutch painting, pre-Golden Age Dutch painting, Flemish painting, or to Saul's being blinded and converted by a bright flash of light. What is Divine Mute's relationship to a work, say, like Last Trumpet from, from 1995? which offers sound more, yeah, literally, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> well, you, you touched on part of the relationship, which is spirituality. So Last Trumpet is a work that is comprised of four 18-foot-long horns that Atkins constructed from a combination of trumpets and sousaphone bells. 
the horns are an instrument of Atkins' own invention that he called the ochrophone. And that term partially comes from the initials of Atkins' father's name, Robert Hamilton Atkins, is embedded within the word ochrophone. And the work was created as a dedication to Atkins' father in 1995, shortly after he passed away. And Atkins spoke about wanting to create an instrument that, when played, the sound could reach the heavens. And there are certainly themes about last judgment in this work as well, and recalling the trumpeters who played horns in announcing the last judgment or the final judgment. Atkins activated this work many times with his group, the Lone Wolf Recital Corps. So four trumpeters who he worked closely with played the trumpets with Atkins directing as his alter ego, Blanche Bruce. It's interesting, the work, I think, also speaks to Atkins' interest in in space. He had this notion that he returned to about vertical and horizontal axes and the way in which horizontal axes were the exploration of the history and ancestors and vertical axes dealt with the spiritual. So this work can be installed either horizontally as it is at the Pulitzer and the trumpets are sort of stretching long ways across the gallery, or it can also be installed vertically. And I think because it came from a group of works that explored Atkins' father after he passed, you can see that either the dedication to his father's life or the meditation on transcendence and the afterlife are can be touched upon through through this work. Last trumpet includes instruments that that can be played in, in, in including in the present day. But often Adkins uh, made use, built sculptures out of instruments that are simply meant to be visually striking to be sculptures without being activated. And a good example of how Adkins uses instruments that way and brings together history with an individual, with an event, with sound, with form, with material, all of these things he became really good at packing into single works is Muffled Drums from 2003, a work now at the Tate. Muffled Drums works in a lot of different ways, including in different configurations. (laughs) What is that that artwork and how does it work both visually and otherwise? Yeah, so Muffled Drums is one of Atkins' most iconic works it's from 2003. It is an installation of 11 bass drums stacked on top of each other to create a towering vertical composition. And a number of the drums are painted or have designs. They were found drums and they represent the location that they were drawn from. For instance, one of them has the insignia of a marching band from Danville, Virginia painted on it. Another, yeah, I'll just say which Atkins had had made is a um, list the insignia of the Little Wolf Recital Corps. And the work comes from a recital called Dark Water, 
which explored the legacy of W.E.B. Du Bois. This work in particular relates to the history of the silent protest march in 1917, which W.E.B. Du Bois organized, and the New York Times described throngs of people marching through the streets to the sound of muffled drums. And it was an important work for us to include in the exhibition in St. Louis because one of the events that instigated the silent protest march was the 1917 East St. Louis riots in which countless black residents were killed at the hands of a white mob. So the work can be installed in a number of different configurations, as you mentioned. At the Pulitzer, we have eight of the drums stacked, and that's the minimum requirement that Atkins stipulated. And it just, he required that it be as, as many drums as possible installed within the space given the ceiling height. But then in addition, he also installed the work as part of a performance in three columns in which he played the drums himself while he listed the names of African-American people who had been killed due to, you know, in, in hate crimes because of their race and deals with the history of lynching. And it's an incredibly powerful performance. We talked about spirituality a little earlier and how important it was to Adkins conceptually and biographically and and in in lots of in lots of ways. And so I think the last work I wanted to ask you about is Ascension Academy from 1989. So it's one of the earlier works in the in, in the exhibition. It has within it lots of things that Adkins did a lot, mirrored or symmetrical form, the the usual, the common inference reference to history and biography. But this is maybe an unusually personal work in that it doesn't just refer to faith. It refers specifically to Catholicism and Adkins' own history within Catholic institutions. What What is it? And how did, <laughs> how did he pack so many references into, into one work? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked about this work. It's not the most well-known piece from Atkins' practice. I think it really well encapsulates the ways in which Atkins was able to explore biography and history through abstraction. And it's an early example from his practice in Zurich when he was first working with carved and painted wood. The wood was actually found materials, and so it does sort of also carry that that history of working with found materials. But it, it very much it very much shows the influence of Martin Purrier, who was one of Atkins professors at Fisk University when he was an undergraduate. But to um, answer your question, the the work the title of the work is drawn from the all male school that Atkins attended from fifth grade and on until he graduated from high school that was called Ascension Academy. Atkins was raised in Virginia, and he originally attended an all-black Catholic elementary school. The school was underfunded, and 
he felt there was not enough opportunity for growth or his parents did. And so he applied for a scholarship to the historically all white, all male school. And he was in the first class of black students to integrate the school. That's that school being Ascension Academy. Yeah, exactly. Ascension Academy. That's correct. So the work is from a titular perspective references this school. And there's certainly, you know, one could draw connections formally to his interest in Catholicism or spirituality or churches. He talks about being raised within the Baptist and Catholic churches and being incredibly inspired by the symmetry of church architecture. As you mentioned, the piece is symmetrical, mirrored, and it's a several foot wide, I'd have to look up the dimensions, I don't know offhand, work that is sort of curved, convex curve, and it's painted with this opalescent white paint. So as you move around it, it sort of changes hue. It's a very dynamic piece and sort of requires of the viewer, it, it creates a haptic, very physical relationship to the work. There's another work from the same period, in fact, in which Atkins also combines abstraction and personal biography to dedicate the work to another important school, which is titled Parker Gray, also a school in Virginia that his grandfather founded was the first public school for black students in Alexandria, Virginia. And at the Pulitzer, we have the two pieces next to each other. They're both symmetrical works, very similar shape and scale, but I think as a pair demonstrate a lot of these tendencies. I was mentioning his his ability to imbue abstract compositions with complex layered references to spirituality and personal biography. Stephanie Weisberg, thanks very much. Thank you so much. It was it was a lot of fun. Artist Mark Bradford creates monumental works of abstract painting and collage. The exhibition Mark Bradford End Papers focuses on the key material and fundamental motif Bradford employed early in his career and has returned to periodically over the past two decades, End Papers. At the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, the exhibition has been extended through January 10th. Information at themodern.org. Welcome back. Next up, our second segment on the opening installations at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston's new 237,000 square foot Stephen Hall designed Kinder Building. This week, I'm joined by Mari Carmen Ramirez, the museum's curator of Latin American art and the director of the museum's International Center for the Arts of the Americas. A couple of weeks ago, I talked to MFAH photography curator Malcolm Daniel about his new installations. Mari Carmen Ramirez, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Very glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Especially because you're opening a new building in the middle of a pandemic with all the restrictions that entails. I think we should start maybe with how the MFA Houston's new building and campus expansion allow both you and the institution to present an argument about Latin American and Latinx art in regards to other times and places across art history and in a way that's unique 
among American art museums. What does this new building allow you, and specifically you personally, to do? Well, as you know, and we have discussed before, the museum started this very ambitious initiative focused on Latin American and Latinx art in 2001, uh, when I was invited to establish a department of focus on Latin American art here at the museum. And I also brought with me the idea of doing Research Center, which is the only one of its kind in the world, and it's the International Center for the Arts of the Americas, or ICAA. So it's been 19 years since we've been in this focus on this very ambitious project that involves organizing a collection, establishing a collection of Latin American and Latino art, undertaking research, focus on primary sources uh, for the the ICAA runs the documents of 20th century Latin American and Latino art digital archive project, which is a major monumental initiative. And we've also organized very important exhibitions of uh, Latin American art that are all research-based. And overall, our main goal and our main mission of this program, first of all, is a program that is hemispheric in scope and perspective, because from the very beginning, we decided that it was, would be about Latin American, which means all the art south of the border, Mexico, Central and South America, the Caribbean, which is a very complex region in and of itself. But at the same time, we also wanted to include Latino art in the United States. I felt that it was very important to see these two groups, these two categories, you know, as, as one as part of a, of a bigger phenomenon. And so we've had this, this focus all along. We've been very hard working in each one of these areas, but until now, we have not had permanent gallery space to show the works in the collection and to be able to give a visible face you know, to our program. And what these galleries do is give us for the first time permanent galleries place and the flexibility to play with that space in many different configurations that will involve showing everything that we have been collecting and everything that we have been doing, both at the level of the ICAA and at the level of the Latin American Art Department. And the fact that this is a building dedicated to building itself is not just for Latin American and Latino art, it's for 20th and 21st century art. So it allows Latin American art to be seen, you know, in its, on its own, you know, in certain galleries, but at the same time to be seen in conversation with European, American, Asian, or any other artist from any other part of the world. And I think that that is, that is really very important. I don't think that there is any other museum in the United States that has uh, these kinds of gallery spaces. Other museums have focused on collecting works by Latin American and Latino artists that they put in dialogue with their existing holdings of European and American art. But I don't think that there is, is this concentration of Latin American and Latinx artists in any other museums in the United States. You're being modest with the I don't thinks, <laughs> because you and I both know there's nothing like it. <laughs> <laughs> In the New York Times, your, your director, your second director, Gary Tinnero, said that you've, quote, created a canon for the field within the MFA Houston. That's wonderful and important in all the obvious ways, but with it can also come a sense that maybe a curator should install the canon, should install an argument for the canon in, within the departmental galleries. Did you try to do that? And if not, 
how did you approach your initial installation? Well, that's a kind of a two-edged sword. It is, on the one hand, a compliment, and I'm grateful for it. But at the same time, I think, uh, coming from someone from my generation, really uh, fought tooth and nail against existing canons, established canons. I mean, we were a generation that really rebelled against the Eurocentric canon. And we all the work that I have done over the last 35 years or more has been to really debunk those platitudes that permeate our understanding of 20th and 21st century art and to establish a, a different narrative and to give voice to artists, whether from South America, Central America, the Caribbean, or the U.S. Latino communities, uh, to give voice to them and what they did in their time, which had been completely marginalized and underrepresented in the history of art. So from that point of view, my intention was not to create a canon. In any case, it was to create an alternative you know, to, to that canon. I realized that once you, you establish that you put out any other kind of narrative, you know, it tends to be subsumed into this notion of a canon. So now I will have to figure out another way you know, to break you know, <laughs> that narrative. But the purpose all along has been to give voice to underrepresented artists. More importantly, I think it's been to give voice to artists who really made major contributions to 20th and 21st century uh, modernism and contemporary art. And that's the purpose of having a research center together with the curatorial department. We have instances in Latin America since the 1940s, for instance, with groups like the Arturo Madi group and Arte Concreto Invención in Argentina of artists who really introduced new ideas like the cutout frame, uh, which is an antecedent to the shaped canvas, or they introduced ideas such as the interactive structure or the interactive sculpture, which predates many other of those experiments in Europe and the United States. And these are artists who really not just practice art or were really good artists in what they're doing, but they were also they also made theoretical contributions, you know, to modernism and postmodernism. And that aspect does not tend to be recognized. These artists are recognized for being good artists, extraordinary artists, good practitioners, but hardly anyone gives credence to the fact that they actually contributed theory to our understanding of 20th and, and 21st century art. So uh, this combined initiative here and in Houston of having curatorial department focus on the works and the artists, and then the research center that focuses on the documentation, you know, and the writings of these artists, their intellectual production, you know, those two things together are fundamental for what we set out to do. And that certainly has been my goal and my mission from the beginning, is to give voice to these artists, to expose what they have done, both at the artistic level, as well as the intellectual and theoretical level. I think related to what you were saying a moment ago about canons, one of the things you and the MFA Houston have done over the many years is having avoided or establishing an er figure of Latin American modernism, of, of presenting a single point from which a continental address descended. So in I, I think American historians and curators of European modernism, maybe more so museums than, than the academy, 
have presented European modernism as having descended primarily from two artists, right? Matisse and Picasso, whether or not that's the way it happened. Hint, it did not happen that way. How have you consciously tried to avoid falling into that pattern in ways that we might see in the galleries you've installed that open to the public on Saturday? First of all, it's, it's impossible to do that with Latin America. It's such a complex region. And of course, there have been attempts to stereotype the art and to give privileged figures like Diego Rivera or Frida Kahlo and to try to encase everything you know, in what these artists represent. But I think that we have, many of us have worked tirelessly over the last few decades, you know, to debunk, you know, all those stereotypes and those productive narratives about Latin American art. My approach and the approach that we took here in in Houston was to focus on the notion of the avant-garde, which is a European concept that had very strong presence in Latin America. As you may recall, we, uh, the, the exhibition that gave shape to our program was Inverted Utopias, Avant-Garde Currents in Latin America from 1920 to 1970. And so with the avant-garde, we're looking at artists who shared a utopian vision of the role of art in society. We're looking at artists who engage in experimentation with media, with techniques, with ideas and concepts. Uh, They were artists who were constantly trying to push the limits of art uh, to create something new. And I think that that has been an underlying framework for the approach that we have taken in Houston. And when you think about it, trying to, when when I first, when we first started the, the program, you know, I was charged with, you know, creating, organizing a collection of art from all over Latin America. And that's a really daunting task. You know, you're talking about more than 20 countries, ethnicities, uh, races, groups, movements all over Latin America. So the way that I approached this issue was through the notion of the avant-garde, which takes place not only in the 1920s, but also later in the, in the century, in the 1950s, 1960s. And it's a, it's a flexible uh, concept that allows us to, to look at this idea of artists who are pushing the limits of art and who are also not only practicing art, but are also writing about it, are theorizing about it, are producing manifestos, are engaging in debates. And the fact that we had already done Inverted Utopias also provided an initial map you know, for, for the collection. And I figured that if we could collect, you know, even 50% of what we had presented in Inverted Utopias, which was a huge show of three, over 350 works, we would have the core basis for, for a collection. And in many ways, I approached building the collection as an exhibition, you know, thinking of relationships, between works, relationships within artists, and particularly this notion of experimentation, you know, of trying to push, whether it was painting or or sculpture or photography or drawing, trying to push it to another level. What's interesting about that is the art on view in your new galleries, you know, with one or two exceptions on, on the back end, on the recent end, pretty much hues to the timeline you laid out in Inverted Utopias. I think the earliest work in your new galleries is a 1929 Joaquin Torres Garcia sculpture. And I think there's only one or two works in your departmental galleries that go beyond 1977 or 78. And of course, as I mentioned in the introduction, 
there is Latin American and Latinx art throughout other spaces in the building too, the, the atriums and in contemporary galleries where there is photography, painting, lots of good stuff. Yes, but uh, we, you know, obviously we started with that framework of 1920s to, to 1970, but we have since moved way beyond right. that. We have collected a lot of contemporary art, a lot of, you know, even emergent art in many cases. So the collection really has gone beyond that initial chronological framework. One of the things I noticed in the checklists, and and to repeat, if I haven't said it already, I've only seen the checklists. I haven't been able to, for obvious reasons, travel to Houston at this time, is that the installations seem to really emphasize a relationship between painting and sculpture relationships across media. Was that a priority? Well, absolutely, because artists were trying to break down those divisions. And that's part of this notion of avant-garde practice and, and experimentation. What we did in the, on the second floor galleries was really to focus on the constructive collection, uh, which really forms the core, the historic core of what we have been doing since uh, 2001. When we started at that time, it was already late for any institution to start a significant collection in the early part of the century. I mean, things like Mexican muralism, Frida Kahlo, Frida Lam, Mata, uh, although Mata is, is represented in the collection from before, but uh, it was, would have been very difficult for any institution to create any kind of substantial collection from that period because there, there was not that much work out in the market. And Things like um, the, the key Mexican figures are protected by patrimony laws. So even if we found important works, we couldn't um, buy them and uh, export them from, uh, from Mexico. So we were very lucky that the first work that came into the collection was uh, a major Ularia by the German Venezuelan artist Gegel, which is She's one of the greatest exponents of this constructive movement in, in Latin America. Then the second work that came into the collection was a small uh, but very important wood construction by Joaquin Torres Garcia, which is the one that you mentioned of 1929. And then a few years later, we were able to acquire the Adolfo Lerner Collection of Brazilian Constructive Art, which includes over 100 works that tell the story of a major chapter of Latin American art, which is Brazilian concrete and neoconcrete art. So we were able with one collection to really cover that entire you know, history of um, such an important movement. So that gave us a strong foundation to continue to build upon. And of course, these movements way back 30 years ago, uh, nobody was paying attention to them. I mean, they were not characteristic of what is now they're absolutely mainstream, but at that time, there was no real understanding of what these artists' contributions had been. And so we were very lucky that when we started, all of these material was flooding the market because there had been a reassessment to which I have contributed and others, you know, of my generation. And now uh, constructive art is really has has become mainstream. is very sought out by collectors and institutions all over the world. And we happen to have a very strong holdings in that area. So the idea was to prioritize that the installation of that of those works and to make them accessible to people, uh, to our audiences in different ways. So our approach to the installation 
was not to present anything in chronological or graphic terms, but to approach it thematically and to approach it as with the understanding that constructive art implied a new language of art, a completely new language of art, a new syntax of artistic elements that did not depend on the natural world, but on the elements that were intrinsic to art. And we tried to break down that new language, that new syntax into different thematic clusters. And so we have, for instance, the first thematic cluster that has to do with the idea of, of structure or the grid. And there we put in dialogue artists like Torres Garcia, who's a major a figure, a major master of constructive art, who developed this language that he called constructive universalism, where he took Mondrian's grid and then he inserted pictograms, pictographs that relate to universal symbols, uh, such as the clock, the ladder, the anchor, the figure of man, the figure of woman. And in his view, this could provide for a, a language of universal communication. So we put uh, Torres Garcia in dialogue with, for instance, Elio Itisica, with Elio Itisica's Metasquemas, where he also uses the grid, but starts to destabilize the grid, to work, as many of the neoconcrete artists did, to work in that space between the work of art and the, the viewer to activate that space perceptually. And then we incorporate a contemporary artist like Magdalena Fernandez, who produced uh, a series of videos based on uh, the work of Elio Itisica and his Metasquema. So she's deconstructing that work. Or Eugenio Espinosa, another Venezuelan artist who sets out to deconstruct the notion of the square and the notion of the grid. So, uh, these clusters of artists really expose connections between constructive artists across time and across space and across generations. Your collecting strategy has become particularly well known for not following the market, for, for finding significant artists, significant ideas, and representing them in your collection, often uh, light years before other United States institutions do. One example who might also point to the internationalism of your approach is an artist named Samson Flexor. There are, I think, six works. I think there are six Flexors in your collection. I think three of them are, are on view now. Who is Flexor and why is his work a good example of trans-oceanic dialogues that Americans are used to seeing maybe through United States, Europe discourses, but that you're presenting in South American European discourse? Well, to your first commentary, it is true, yes, that we have not uh, necessarily followed the market. I, what I say, what you should say is that, you know, we have worked with the market, but we have not been defined by the market. And, and the reason why we have been able to do that is because we have a research center. And Great because there's so much importance on research. So we know before the market knows who are the important artists, why they were important for our history. And we have, you know, the materials to prove it. We have the writings, we have the manifestos, we have the, um, the, the written uh, debates. And, and, you know, we, we have an understanding of what happened, you know, at a particular time. And so that has allowed us to take the risk uh, necessary to build this type of collection. 
because I think one of the reasons why many institutions shy away from that kind of approach is because they're afraid of the risk. They're afraid of making a mistake. And they don't have the, the tools, the materials, you know, to make uh, a sound assessment of, of what they're doing. So for us, uh, the ICAA has provided, you know, that vehicle and that tool. And that's why we have been able to, you know, even artists like, you know, Julak, even artists like Torres Garcia, who's, even though he's recognized as a master, there's still very little in-depth understanding, you know, of who he was and what he was. He's a terribly complex figure and feel, filled with many contradictions, uh, who lived in like six different countries. And, you know, there's, there's a lot to tease out about, about his figure. And, uh, but we have the tools to do that. And then in relation to someone like Samson Flexer, uh, he's an artist that is represented in the Lerner collection and is a testament to Adolfo Lerner to uh, the fact that he paid so much importance to Flexer's work. He's a figure that is, as far as I know, unknown outside of Brazil. But curiously, in 2000, uh, 2008 or 2009, we, uh, we organized an exhibition of the Lerner collection the house, I forget the name, exact name of the museum. Anyway, it's, it's a museum that Max Bill established in Zurich. And we took the exhibition there. And to my surprise, we, we thought that, of course, people were going to go crazy with the work of Ligia Clark or Elio Tisica or some of the better known artists. And the artist that was the big sensation of that, of that exhibition in Max Bill's you know, hometown uh, was uh, Samson Flexer which is uh, very interesting. Flexer uh, represents somewhat of a transitional figure. He's someone who, uh, like many of these artists, had spent time in Europe, particularly in Paris, and then returns to, um, to Sao Paulo. And he, unlike some of the other artists who go on to become involved with the concrete movement, which was a very important, the most important movement at that time in, in Sao Paulo. Uh, he keeps his independence from them. He establishes what it's called the Atelier Abstraction, or the Abstraction Workshop, where he gathers artists who are interested in geometric abstraction, but not necessarily on such inflexible terms as a concrete artist. Uh, so these were artists who were engaged in different forms of uh, geometric abstraction, but in a far more dynamic, sometimes organic way, and kind of established their own approach and their own tendency in Sao Paulo. There's painting in your departmental galleries, there's sculpture in your departmental galleries, but because the museum also runs a major international research center. You have found a way to include and, and refer to it in your galleries. How and why was that important to you? Well, we have spent 19 years, you know, in a major project building a digital archive of documents of primary sources of Latin American and Latino art. This has been a multi-million dollar initiative that has involved over 16 teams of researchers in 16 different Latin American and U.S. cities. There's nothing like it in the world. And it was a very hard way to create a digital archive, but it's what was needed because of the limitations and restrictions of the field. So we felt very strongly that this notion of the archive needed to be present in the galleries. And of course, the idea of putting cases with documents 
particularly in the last few years, is nothing new. But we felt that we had to look for a way not only to have the physical presence of the documents, uh, but also to have people provide ways for people to access them. And it's important to point out that as a research center, we do not collect documents. Our entire initiative is based on the digital it's a digital initiative. So we literally, we just scan documents. The documents remain in their native countries with their owners, whether they're artists or artists' estates or archives. And all we do is provide access to those, those documents, you know, through uh, the digital archive. But the Hirsch Library of the, of the museum has been collecting important documents related to important works in our collection. And Adolfo Lerner also gave us the archive of the collection at the time when, when we bought his collection. So we do have important, very important archival holdings. And what we did was that in each cluster, in each thematic cluster, there is a vitrine that shows very important documents from our collection. And then there are iPads in each vitrine where people, we developed a particular software where people can directly access the document. They can, if it's a, a magazine or review, they can literally go in and go page by page and flip and, and read the contents. There are summaries in both Spanish and English to access them and different kinds of tools for people to zoom in, uh, zoom out, and focus on different aspects of, of the document itself. Uh, so we felt that that was in itself an important way to provide access to the archive. Another thing that we did, which is more geared towards the younger generations of, of viewers and, and audience scores, is that we did an interactive wall where people can actually play with documents. I mean, they can pull up the documents. You have, it, it functions through your phone. So there is a, a code that you access through your phone, and then you can play and bring up all sorts of different documents on this big wall, and you can play with them as you would do with a game or a video game. And we felt that that was very important to engage, you know, the young uh, viewers and make them understand, you know, the importance of documents, you know, in relation to art. And we'll see how that goes. <laughs> it's an experiment, but we feel very, very excited about that. We have a... Um, a fantastic team at the ICAA that includes you know, team members of various generations. And we really had a very active dialogue with our very young members of, of the team who indicated that this would be something that they would be very excited about. So we're going to try it out and we'll see if, if we can make you know, documents be something cool. What we have to do nowadays, and I think uh, somebody also raised the question of, well, do you want to have this kind of interactive uh, wall, you know, in the midst of the gallery? What about if people just want to contemplate art? And I said, well, I think we're beyond art, contemplation of art. As much as we would like to just have galleries for ourselves, I think we are invaded uh, and our, our lives depend on these digital tools. And so why not just accept that and make them part, you know, of our experience of the art? Uh, rather than exclude them on the basis of, you know, essentially an 18th century note of uh, what the relationship of art should be. We've been talking about your departmental galleries, which go up to around 1980. But as we've mentioned a couple times, a floor up, up on the third floor of the new Kinder Building, the museum's contemporary galleries are full of 
relationships between Latin American contemporary art and Latinx contemporary art and other contemporary art from from around the world. And I don't think it's probably going too far out on a limb to say that your collection galleries will now be more fully global than than any other contemporary collection galleries in the United States. And they're not just uh, contemporary. Uh, the third floor galleries have actually uh, a lot of modern art in them. So um, right. it, it, go, it cuts across. I mean, some are a little bit more contemporary than others, but there's a lot of modern art also on the third floor, including important artists of the constructive uh, Latin American movements like Gego. Uh, there's a gallery that hinges around her figure, Carlos Cruz Diaz and other major modern artists of, of, of the light of the kinetic uh, period. Is there an installation or two on the third floor that you think points to how including Latin American and Latinx artists within broader narratives makes everything make more sense, makes, makes a story or an installation as complete as it should be? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. We have on the third floor a gallery that has, uh, for instance, it's a section that's called Witness, uh, where we feature artists who have, have been witnesses to issues of civil rights, violence, and uh, other kinds of wars and uh, revolutions, or other social issues that are, you know, of the times. And there we have uh, people, for instance, like Kara Walker, uh, with her narrative center on African-American myth and African-American stories um, that denounce the inequities that have been perpetrated against that racial group. We have Mel Edwards, who addresses the issue of lynchings, and we have uh, he, he works with devices that were used to lynch people. And in dialogue with that, uh, we have the work of Vincent Valdez, who's um, an artist from San Antonio who lives in Houston, and who has done a whole series of works that he calls Forbidden Fruit, where he shows in the hanged individuals and he's making reference to the lynchings of latinos here in texas because it's usually historians usually refer to the lynchings of african-american citizens but latinos were also being lynched and it's a very controversial very polemical subject but there's now a lot of research to sustain that and he portrays this young man who's wearing the the t-shirt of the rockets He's a, a fan of the uh, basketball team. And so uh, that work is in dialogue with uh, Kyra Walker, with Mel Edwards, with Glenn Ligon. And that, that's one instance, you know, where uh, it's a very effective dialogue. We also have a very important section on the notion of the border. The fact that the U.S. border is not the longest border in the world, but it's really one of the most cross borders in the world and has generated so much. It's really a bloodstained border when you think about it. So many uh, Latinx artists as well as American artists have addressed that issue, which is very topical for Texas. So in that that section, we have artists of very historic significance like Luis Jimenez with a major fiberglass sculpture called Border Crossing, which is a very iconic figure of uh, Latinx art. And of this particular issue, it's one of the perhaps one of the most powerful renditions of this issue of the border. It shows a man carrying 
his wife and young child, you know, on his shoulders. And it's um, a sculpture, it's a more than life-size sculpture, made in fiberglass. It's from the 1980s. And it represents how artists like Luis Jimenez, you know, address uh, this very important and controversial topic, but also from a very radical artistic point of view because he was using materials that are not generally associated you know with this with sculpture to begin with you know fiberglass being something associated with uh, industry with automobiles and uh, he's using and manipulating that at what i consider to be a virtuoso level to represent this inequity of you know mexican citizens you know crossing the border and he the figure has such a powerful impact because it also is appealing to Catholic iconography or Christian iconography. And so it becomes much more of a universal symbol. You have this important figure next to someone like Amalia Mesa Baines, one of the leaders of the Latina uh, movement, uh, way back since the 1970s and 80s, a major installation called Transparent Migrations that is given voice to Latina women and trying to uh, make them visible, bring them out of their invisibility, you know, into the mainstream's attention. A new acquisition, that last one, just uh, late, late last year. Yeah, late last year. Yes. So these works are also in dialogue with, with American artists like David Taylor, major photographer, who documented every single border post yeah, they're uh, they're they're uh, they're like concrete or plaster obelisks that I guess in the simplest terms are intended to mark where the abstraction is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, there's, there's another name to them. I just I just can't uh, I'm thinking of it in Spanish. That's what's problem. Right? I'm thinking of it in Spanish, not in English. But anyway, David Taylor is an American photographer who set out to document every single signpost that indicates, you know, where the, where the border line lies, you know, between Mexico and the United States. And it's an amazing series of photographs, perhaps over 500 photographs, you know, although we're not showing all of them, because it gives you a real sense, you know, of this abstraction that we call the border. You know, we think about the border and we think about, you know, this abstraction, and perhaps we can think of Trump's fence and, you know, little bits and pieces that we, that we see in the news. Uh, but this really gives you a sense, you know, of what we're talking about concretely when we're talking about the border. And of all the different landscapes and the changes, you know, in landscape that we see all across, you know, this very, very huge border that separates the United States from Mexico. Yeah, one of the things about that section that's really interesting is that it's a section about the border, but it's also a section of your installation that's about mapping and about migration. And those works are all presented together in a way that points to geopolitical abstraction and geopolitical intransigence, at least on one side of the border. Yes, and it has very important uh, works for our contemporary debates. A work like Camilo Ontiveros, Temporary Storage, uh, is a work that literally pulls together in a temporary sculpture all the belongings of Juan Manuel Montes, who was the first uh, DACA student that had to leave the country 
right after Trump assumed office. He was deported instantaneously in one night. He left everything behind. And Camilo Ontiveros, who had been working on this notion of temporary storage related to his own experience as a migrant, as an immigrant uh, artist here in the United States, was able to work out an agreement with the family. And he literally gathered everything from the bed, his clothes, uh, Juan Manuel's uh, clothes, computer, everything that he had in his desk, his boxing gloves, you know, everything, and was able to pull it together. And so that is there as a testament, you know, to something that is very controversial right now in our political debates. We'll have an image of that on Averos and everything else, I think, that we've discussed on, on manpodcast.com, and I can't wait to see it all for myself. Mari Carmen Ramirez, thanks so much. Thanks to you for having me. It's a pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.